Welcome to The Engineering Room, a monthly series of long-form conversations with influential people from the world of software. The Engineering Room series is sponsored by Equal Experts, and I'd like to thank them for their ongoing support. So if you'd like some help building some great software or interested in finding a great place to work, do check their links out there in the description below. My guest today is a consultant, coach, trainer, analyst, and developer. And I think I first met him as an organizer of one of the UK's best software conferences. His name is most closely associated, I think, with behavior-driven development. And he's been a long-term contributor to the Cucumber Open Source Project, which is one of the most widely used frameworks for BDD. Uh, he's also written uh, several books uh, on this and other software topics, including the BDD book series, along with a, with, with a co-author. And he has the first chapter in 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know. He's also a blogger, a regular conference speaker, as well as a conference organizer, and also helps to run a charity via the very excellent cyberdojo.org site to help teach people test-driven development, and also helps children to learn to code. So please welcome Seb Rose. Thanks very much, Dave. Um, I, I, the, just a minor little correction. So although I've been involved with Cucumber uh, and have contributed to it, I'm not a major contributor to Cucumber. I've been a, uh, I've been someone who proselytizes BDD and Cucumber and promotes it. But if you look at my commits on the open source uh, on the repo, you'll find they are few and far between. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so, so it's it's the, the, nevertheless, uh, even if you're not writing the code, uh, you know that, that's quite a list. You, you, you're a pretty busy busy man. Uh, what else did I miss? Um. Uh, well, so I'm um, one of the I'm on the committee of the um, Edinburgh branch of the BCS, uh, and we invited you to come and speak here a number of years ago, um, yeah. which which was great. Uh, I've been involved with First Lego League uh, through the BCS as well for a while, um, and I'm currently a, a director of Socrates UK and help organise the uh, Socrates um, Unconference which happens in the first at the first weekend of June every year. And uh, we're just about to do a kickoff. And in fact, by the time this goes live, we should have uh, already started announcing when next year's Socrates conference is going to take place. And we're always looking for people, A, to come along and join in the unconference, but also uh, because it's a community adventure, not-for-profit, et cetera, et cetera, we're always looking for people to help organize it. So uh, this is a sort of call to action right at the beginning <laughs> a long form conversation <laughs> cool uh, we'll put some links in the description underneath to to point people in the right direction for that stuff great i i, I think i think certain, certainly when i think of you um and and your work probably because because I, I don't know you very well but i tend to think primarily of bdd uh, and i was kind of peripherally involved in the creation of BDD from from the outskirts, while mm -hmm. um, Dan North and Chris Matz were working on the ideas. Um, so I'm really interested in how you got involved, uh, how you perceive it, and what's worth all of this effort that you put into it. Yeah, well, so I wasn't there at the beginning. Um, my my background is fairly traditional. I went to um, university in in Edinburgh starting in 1983, uh, I did computer science and electronics, and uh, then I went and uh, got involved in a, 
a few jobs after I graduated and I did, went from C to C++. Um, and I was very much um, a contractor, cutting code, um, progressing into architecture and just generally um, a, a bum on a seat as a member of a team. Uh, and when my, my, my daughter was born, so my first child, I thought that contracting was maybe a bit too dodgy. I don't know whether anybody who's listening has been through that process. You know, you think you always think about the next job. And there's, I don't know why we think this, but we somehow think that a permanent job is more steady than a contract job. Uh, it's not just, you know, um, FYI, just in case you didn't realize it, you're probably likely to be kept on as a contractor more likely than you are to be kept on as a permi. Um, but anyway, I went permi with um, IBM. And at that point, um, I started looking much more deeply into test-driven development. I'd started looking at it during contracting uh, when I was working with Bank of Scotland. But at IBM, I really got into it and I came across Cucumber. And it just seemed like it immediately, it, immediately I thought, why have I never heard of this before? Why is it not being used everywhere? Um, and at that point, uh, I was working in, in Java and there was no cucumber for Java. There was, mm. a, there was a hideous thing that Goiko, Goiko Ajek had done for trying to um, get uh, JRuby running and getting cucumber to run in Java environments. And I never really got it working very well. And at that point, I started um, communicating with Aslak, trying to work out what was good, what way to go forward. Didn't get, make, get much traction at Amazon, but I uh, didn't get traction at IBM. Then I moved to Amazon, didn't get much traction mm -hmm. at Amazon. Um, and then I went back to being a consultant and I was working with uh, an insurance company uh, and they had some real issues with testing um, new versions of their insurance rates. Uh, this was back in... Um, the early 2000s, I guess, and no, 2010 around there. And they were there was a change in the UK law um, to do with uh, gender discrimination. So in the past, before that time, uh, insurance companies were allowed to give women cheaper car insurance than men, because of course, women are safer drivers, as everybody knows. Mm -hmm. But the, this law changed and it was, weren't allowed to discriminate by changing prices. And so they knew that when this law came in, there's going to be massive competition in the marketplace. Um, as it came in, people were going to be tweaking their rates on a practically daily basis to try and make sure that they kept their market share. Um, and they had a turnaround time of testing uh, a new rate pack of around six weeks. Um, that's not very agile. That wasn't going to help them keep <laughs> their market share. Uh, and so, uh, so I said, well, we could do this with Cucumber. You know, we could we could write Cucumber scripts. We could put we could work with your actuaries, and your actuaries could write their test cases um, in a spreadsheet, which is what they love doing. The Cucumber yeah. scripts could read the spreadsheet, um, uh, run the tests, and you get your result in about half an hour. And they were it just changed their whole business model. Now, mm -hmm. since then, I, I've spent a lot of my career in BDD trying to explain that that what I did there was not BD, the BDD. What I did for that insurance company was harness the power of a, um, a business readable scripting language yeah. to do fast turnaround testing. Um, but uh, the fact that I was engaging with Cucumber, I was engaging with Aslak, and I then met Matt Wynn, who was um, Aslak's um, co 
a co-lead of the Cucumber Project for a long time um, at a conference in Edinburgh. Uh, it was at that point that I started beginning to understand that behavior-driven development starts way before automation, actually has nothing to do with scripting um, and, uh, and really has very little to do with Cucumber either these days. So yeah. behavior-driven development and Cucumber, I, I now think of as almost as two separate, separate things. Well, that's interesting. I, I, so, so, so certainly, certainly the way that I was thinking of BDD at the start was very different to where it ended up. I think partly a result as a result of Cucumber, um, because um, we started off trying to fix TDD. <laughs> we were trying to, we were, you know, we were trying to focus on the behaviour and trying to get to the high ground of of test driven development advantages uh, much earlier in the process. Um, the it's 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 interesting what you're saying about the um the you know your first use of um bdd wasn't really bdd because because i that's another side effect i i you know i i think one of the techniques of bdd is this idea of creating a domain specific language that allows it that makes it easy to express um useful requirements um and once you've got one of those DSLs, it's a really handy tool for other things. Yeah, and and I often I often see it in that kind of light too, as a way of more effectively being able to, you know, in 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 regression situations, go back and kind of backfill the testing some of the texting legacy. But but so so can you describe a little bit of of that description in a bit more deep that distinction that you make in a bit more detail between those those yeah. Yeah, so um, I guess the, the thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go back even a bit further. Okay. Yeah. So the first project that I worked on when I graduated was called the Recursive Project. Um, I will give you a link to an article that I wrote about that. But the Recursive Project was um, a TLDR, a complete failure. Um, it was it was run by a Glasgow hi-fi company called Lynn. Um, so any audiophiles on listening one will know who Lynn are. Um, and they wanted to automate uh, a new warehouse that they'd built. Um, and they'd commissioned um, uh, Professor Har David Harland to write some software to automate their system. And he wrote the software, demoed it. They loved it. And then he said, but none of the hardware available today is sufficiently powerful to run it in a, a, efficiently enough. So somehow he conned them into setting up a company to develop their, their own object-oriented chipset called the Recursive. Mm -hmm. And his um, the boat to which he had he he he's he nailed his his sail was complex instruction set computing. Now mm -hmm. um, everyone listening to this podcast will know that that's not uh, that's not the approach that won the computing war, right? So every yeah. chips out there at the moment is a risk reduced instruction set computing. He was going for uh, com complex instruction set computing so you could develop um, subroutines or in microcode uh, that could encapsulate complex operations. And in a way, there's a parallel there to how we, how BDD practitioners advise people to use Gherkin. So what yes. we're trying to do is develop that um, that high level um, domain specific language that describes yeah. concisely, potentially really complex operations. Uh, the classic example from pretty much every 
um, BDD uh, tutorial look at will be login, right? Mm -hmm. The web login. So you don't want to say, I, I click this link, I click the login button, um, I enter my username, I enter my password, I click the submit button, I say I'm not a robot, or get my TF two-factor authentication to enter it. You don't want to say all that. You just want to say, uh, given that I've logged in, and that might yeah. be an arbitrarily complex operation. Yeah. However, you look at um, you look at ninety five percent of the Gherkin scripts that are written, and they are a very low level of abstraction. They will go through every single mechanistic step. Uh, they yes. don't accept intention. Um, yes. And that that's something that that we continually try and push people away from. We we ask them to develop the understanding. And from that understanding of the domain, you can then, in conversation with other stakeholders and other people on the team, you can develop that domain-specific language. And at that point, you're in a place where you can specify your requirements in little, um, well, uh, in little um, scenarios, as they're called, but, you know, in examples of how it's being used. And those examples can be very brief. Yeah. Um, at which point, you know, I have to plug the fact that Gashbar and I, in our BDD book series, created the acronym BRIEF to describe how you can get to the point that arbitrarily complex operations can be described and specified in business re readable language in five lines or fewer. Because yeah. the last thing you want is to go from, you know, your, your six-month big design up front and having 300 pages of specification to having um feature files with 150 scenarios in them each of which is 50 lines long nobody's yeah. going to it, and no one's ever going to spot the mistakes that are inevitably there yeah and and they're going to be more coupled more tied to whatever your implementation is as yeah. a side effect of, of doing it that way it's one of the huge advantages of I, I I think in general I I don't I don't really thought between the uh, the, the similarity of kind of you know uh, CISC chip design and BDD before but but it makes complete sense to me I I remember the era era when people were trying to you know do the kind of application specific uh, CPUs you know yeah. <laughs> as a result there were several moves to build Java CPUs I remember amongst other things but <clears throat> but 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 that idea of abstraction and I, and I wonder often whether that's one of the things that people find difficult about software design it's I, I i've 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 said a few times that my as a consultant going into other people's organizations it's not that i often see bad design the most common thing that i see no design at all and people don't think in these sorts of terms of using techniques like abstraction to kind of raise the level so you can kind of talk about something precisely accurately without going into all of the nerdy detail that you don't really care about that's just the plumbing the details of all of those other things as you said with the login example they're important they need to be there but they're a side effect of what the user wants which is to get access to the things that they want to use and so specifying it that way seems important to me yeah uh, there's although we have to caveat that by saying that we need to specify things using the you know an abstract in, from a high level of, of abstraction because otherwise you get 
bogged down in all the detail, but you mm-hmm. also need to specify the low level aspects. So ah. if you're, when you're actually designing login, you're going to need absolutely going well. You could do it through TFA. You could be using a token. It might be with fingerprint recognition. Yeah. Um, but you don't need to do that every time you ha- you, you're talking about an example that involves login. Only when you're actually trying to make sure that you're designing the login process correctly, do you need to go down into the weeds? And I think people, it's it's basically like the the many layers of the onion, isn't it? So mm-hmm. you, you start from if you do take it from an outside in approach, well, you start off by thinking about you know the the, the journeys that you're going to go through. You may be doing something like user story mapping, and you're discussing these with your with your users. But then at each point that you get to you know a, a significant piece of business logic well then we have to dive in it's just you don't have mm-hmm. to keep eating all of that detail in all of your other um, examples and scenarios and and i think that fractal nature of it is one of the things that we were touching on earlier when i was saying where, where we started from when we were talking about bdd was the lower level stuff it was the yeah. <clears throat> you know if i'm writing a list What's the behavior of the of a list from the user's point of view? That is a programmer using a list class or whatever else. You know, that's still behavioral. You still want to you still want to express the behavior in your tests rather than the detail implement the implementation detail that gets gets in the way. So you want to be able to say if I'm adding to something to a list, you know, the the, the the things are added in order and and I can get them out on the index that, you know, that it was added at. And those sorts of, those are behaviours that say nothing yeah. about, nothing at all about the implementation detail inside. And it's that kind of abstraction that, that gives us the tool that you were talking about to being able to talk at the business level. You know, I, 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 you know given, given that the user's logged in, now they can do these things. It's kind of the same sort of thing, but it's fractal. It's operating at a different scale, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely is. Um, I, you know, this is kind of a tangent here, but quite, but but maybe maybe topical. I wonder, I wonder how the um, Nats defect crept in, um, mm-hmm. where they had managed to have, according to the papers yesterday, they managed to have two waypoints not in the UK with the same name. Now, yes. you, know, you would think you would think that safety critical software systems would have recognized that unique naming was quite a useful property to have. And yes. yet you would think that that would have cropped up if you'd had any sort of um, domain language that you could um, you could express abstract concepts in. Yeah, and and and, and the, the, the one of the huge advantages, I think, of I, 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 t- I tend to use the word specification a lot when I'm talking about you know, what it is that we're creating rather than tests, because mm-hmm. well, you know, treating them as specifications, I think, puts you more into the mindset of um, imagining those scenarios that might be problematic, the kind of engineering thinking, of, how could this possibly go wrong? Well, all these ways. So let's think, let's think yeah. about what we want to do when, it, when it's going wrong in those ways. And I think it drives you to, to that kind of thinking, which I certainly find hugely more productive and, and a lot safer in, in the systems that I build. Yes. Uh, there's still, though, isn't there, um, an almost, it's a subliminal belief that what developers should be doing is hitting the keyboard and typing code 
and yeah. we started typing code you know it's like it's it's redolent of the 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 job adverts that i remember from the the 90s and early 2000s where they used to say must be able to hit the ground running it's basically yeah. means we want you to written half the code come with your own libraries and just chug it out and we're not we're not going to worry about testing or yeah. testing. yeah yeah absolutely and and absolutely 100 percent. but 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 also you know we software developers are often complicit in thinking you know thinking about our jobs in those terms you get people so testing's not my job and you know those sorts of pushbacks when you start talking about this way of working but yeah it seems it seems to i i i I'm I'm talking too much, but I, but but you're you're encouraging me because because we're <laughs> in strong strong agreements. But but I I I I, th I think that you know our, our job is to solve problems for soft for people largely using software. If we can solve the problems without the software, that's still a win. <laughs> so well, so minim yeah. minimizing the amount of software that we write is probably a good yeah. thing. But so I mean, one of my mantras is one that Liz Keel um, taught me, which is when when you get given a, a software problem, imagine how you can solve it with an infinite number of pixies. I think she said, "Yeah, fairy. an infinite number of small imaginary beings." And before, yeah. once you've imagined how you might solve it like that, then consider which of those imaginary beings could be realized as software, and yeah. begin to um, pink things in. Um, I'm also currently wearing um, a, a Lean Agile Scotland T-shirt. I don't know if it's visible <laughs> on the back of it. Uh, yeah. It's goals law, which basically says that uh, it's complexity law, which basically says that all most complex systems that work invariably evolved out of simple systems that work. And it seems yeah. to me that we a real problem in the world at the moment that uh, people go straight for the complexity um, rather than trying to find a simple way and then having uh, processes potentially manual processes to cover the the few cases that fall outside of the simple path and then gen gradually um, engineer it design it so that it can cope with more and more of the the corner cases because you can you can go and try and do everything all at once and 80% of the stuff you do will never be used or yeah. you can go deal with the 80% that happens all the time and then have exception uh, process handling to deal with the 20% that don't fit into those. And so we, we don't, we don't appear to be very good uh, at, at understanding that. Uh, it seems to me that the cost of uh, creating and maintaining software, despite the fact that everybody knows it's expensive is still wildly underestimated. Uh, and so yes. people try to solve all the problems all at once for the first release rather than, being able to prioritize um, the things that will actually deliver the most value um, the quickest. Yeah, I, 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 I think I'd be, I think I'd take an even a, a slightly harder line than your T-shirt in that I think that all complex systems start off as a simple system. I don't, I don't think, I can't think of anything complex that sprung fully formed from the mind of some genius. That they evolve and develop over time. You know, even when you know you think about Einstein riding on his train and imagining trains going at the speed of light and what that would happen. But that came out of 
lots and lots and lots of other learning that got him to the point to allow him to, to think those ideas. And he still didn't get it all right. He was still getting special relativity before he got to get to get general relativity. So yeah. even when we are genuinely talking about a genius, you yeah. know, it's not that simple. And, and it seems to me that the, the stuff that we've been talking about seem to be some of the tools that can help us all, genius or not, to make progress and do that. People used to talk, I, I used to talk, think about my, my approach as being kind of defensive, but, but, but it's just incremental. It's just working so you can keep your software in a state where you can safely and easily change it. And, and BDD, as you described in your story right at the beginning, is a huge win for helping to, 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 to do that in its regression testing position, a readable, understandable regression testing place. I mean, uh, we've all, and anyone who's been involved in testing and has had to go and uh, try and read through, I don't know, um, test scripts out of one of the, maybe maybe legacy, but maybe not quite legacy repositories, will know that yep. the, the title of the test script very rarely um, adequately describes what the test script does. And you wonder why the test script is so long. And then you end up with 30 of them that you're looking at and you can't work out yeah. why you need to run all 30 of them. And But you're not confident enough to delete any because there's no one left in the company that knows why they were written. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it is in so many ways, every diff, we, we've been talking about quite a lot of different topics in the, in the past 15, 20 minutes, but they're all, yep. reg they're all regarding the complexity of systems and how you manage those complex that those complexities and in fact you go back to um some of the early catas that demonstrate tdd um, for instance the bowling game cata and you know developers almost always bulk at that first test which returns i can't remember nil or whatever it was yeah because it's well why are you hard coding that well, because yeah. this is implementing a, a, an application that covers a specific case, and now we're going to iteratively and incrementally generalize it. We'll yes. add more tests, and we'll add more code to cover different situations. It's a difficult one to get across the first time. It's it, it yeah, it's exceedingly difficult, so, and and you can you can kind of understand the reticence to some degree if you're thinking only of writing the code rather than trying to maintain the small steps of incremental change that keep us safe for all of the time which which i think is really you know really part of what it is that we're doing but there's a tension there isn't there because earlier on yeah you were talking about how systems aren't designed and now we're also we're also saying but really you should we should uh, evolve software in small steps and there is yes. to some extent the tension between having a design in mind based on where you want to get to and also letting the software or letting the specification drive out the software in small steps that yes. that is quite that that's that's still a tricky thing to to explain and even it's a tricky thing to do I, I, I agree with you, but I do think that's the huge win for me. And that gets us into other aspects of design. So, so how do you think, you know, that problem is best tackled? Well, 
I actually think the tension is a surface is a, is a surface level tension rather than a deep tension, because actually uh, the reality is you can come up with the design in advance, but until you develop the software and really understood the domain, you're never going to know whether that design is going to satisfy the constraints. And equally, as you're developing a software or even after you've de deployed the software, the um, environment in which it runs is likely to change and therefore the software will need to change and potentially the design will have to adapt. So in, in reality, the way I see it is you can come up with an idea as you're doing your incremental steps, you work towards solving that solution. The, the actual specifications that you write as you know, TDD um, tests are driven to some extent by your understanding of the domain and your initial design. Yeah. But when you find that you've got it wrong or there's a complexity that you hadn't uh, you hadn't considered in advance or indeed the business situation changes so so that you have to modify your design to cope with it, the fact that you have a really good set of specifications that will tell you when you break the software makes it much simpler to modify your the implementation of the design and hence it makes it much simpler to modify the design. So you could start by doing it um, on one laptop and then move it to a client server, uh, a client server configuration, then migrate it to the cloud. And all of these things would be supported by a set of, um, an exhaustive set of um, test scenarios or specifications, which means that you have to come up with a design to start with so that you convince yourself you understand where you're heading. But when you, get to where you thought you were going and discover it's not the right place. All the work that you've done so far is not wasted. You don't have to throw it away. It supports your refactoring towards um, the design that satisfies your new understanding of the requirements. I think that idea is uh, one that people that don't practice TDD and argue against it find surprising and counterintuitive. Um, often the one of the pushbacks that I see, and I, I think I've read some of the stuff that you're writing about some of the common pushbacks a, a while ago too, saying something similar, is that um, people assume that tests are going to make it more difficult to change your mind rather than less. So elaborate a little bit further on that and the you know how, why yeah. that's not the case well i mean i think this harks back to our, where we started around the, the level of abstraction so if you're yeah. writing tests that go well you know I, I want to call this method with these parameters and i expect these method calls to happen as a result of this call with these parameters and then i expect this value to be returned yeah if you want to restructure a system that has tests that are look, that look like that um, you're going to have a hard time. But if you have a, a, a test uh, specifications to your TDD specs written at a higher level of abstraction, where you talk about the behavior that you expect, now the behavior is not changing, or at least in general, most of the behaviors won't, won't, won't change when you change the design. And therefore your tests should carry on working. Um, of course, there will be some behaviors that will change otherwise why are you changing your design and with the, yeah. in which case well of course you're gonna have to rework those specifications because that was the whole purpose of changing the design in the first place so i mean it's it's around the coupling of your tests your implementation yeah. as long as you can keep those 
um, at a sufficiently high level of abstraction, the tests, uh, you know, here we're using specification and tests interchangeably in that. I know that gets confusing. Yeah. But as long as you can keep those specifications at a high enough level of abstraction, then they should support the the, um, the emergent e the evolution of your system design rather than hinder it. However, if you duck down, dive low, you've got very tight coupling between your test spec your specifications and your code. Um, if you've got very um, um, uh, you know very prescriptive mocking or spying going on, then that mm -hmm. that is a form of coupling. And at that point, now you've got a whole bundle of stuff that will act as a drag to change. So there is some subtlety here. I mean, I guess the trouble is we've got these terms, test-driven um, development and behavior-driven development. And certainly in the BDD world, there's a belief uh, in many areas of software development that if you use a piece of a, a tooling uh, framework that uses the words given when then, then you're doing BDD. Yeah. You're not. Um, and in the TDD world, uh, there's a belief that if you write the test before you write the code, then you're doing TDD. Well, th these are both is necessary, but not sufficient to be yeah. to be a test driven developer. You need to have some you need to practice. It's like anything, I guess you need to have some practice. You need to see the fact that if you go down right to the mechanistic level and get very specific about interfaces and return values um, and you don't have an abstraction that describes the domain effectively, then you're probably going to get into deep water later on. Whereas if yeah. you can come up with those understandings, you can um, uh, create, co-create, I would expect, uh, a domain-specific language that describes the behaviors that are needed by your system, then your coupling is at a much higher level because it's really unlikely that your domain is going to, you know, the domain terms are going to evolve really quickly and have to change massively. Whereas yeah. if you go from bubble sort to list sort, you know, that's at a low level implementation detail that could completely change your classes and the methods that you call and the implementation within them. Yeah. 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 Ab ab absolutely. And, and that's, <laughs> the magic word coupling the, the you know the, the enemy of all software developers in my mind <laughs> or at least or at least the you know the the, the height of achievement is getting the coupling right in your designs i think <laughs> but but uh but it's it, it's uh they it, it is a complicated process and as you say this is this is not an innate skill for anyone Everybody needs to learn this, and everybody gets better with practice. Um, so, 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 I, I, I think both. Sorry, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to, I was going to use use your word practice there to segue onto Cyber Dojo and give a quick plug to. Oh, I was going to take us there, <laughs> but go. Okay, on. well, there you go. Pretty much thing I like. So, um, so test driven development. Let's start with a with a. Um, you know, position statement. Test-driven development is um, difficult to do well, but it's quite easy to start um, learning it. So it's yeah, it's simple but not easy. So, well, I, can't, I can never remember which way around it goes, but nonetheless. So, so my colleague John Jagger, uh, many years ago, um, uh, to aid his 
training uh, training course where I trained teams in test driven development, created a really wonderful online training environment called Cyber Dojo, which again, you'll have a link. It's at cyberdojo.org. Um, and it's, I don't want to go into the details about all the wonderful things it does, but it's a really good free to use tool in non-commercial environments for groups of people to all work on the same problem in independent silos and then compare the routes that they took to get to the solution. It comes preloaded with 30 or 40 different languages with multiple different test frameworks and a good a good chunk of uh, different katas to inspire you to get going. Um, and it has wonderful, um, it has wonderful, uh, uh, a wonderful sort of dashboard view. So you can see every commit that people did, every test result, you can compare what people were doing, how you can watch for the, uh, the red, the red, red, green type progression, you know, as people uh, write tests, see them fail, make them pass, then do a lot of refactoring, staying at green. It's just a wonderful tool. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy that the cucumber uh, company, when we were, when we still limited company was able to sponsor the tool. I've been very happy to act as treasurer for the charity that, continues to maintain its um, development and also I'm very grateful to all the uh, businesses and consultants who do give us money on a regular basis for using uh, the tool in commercial settings that we can then use to buy um, to buy hardware to give to underprivileged uh, kids both in the UK and around the world so punt 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 cyber dojo really good place to to practice test driven development and that's really what you need to do you need to practice it it's like learning the piano so the the scale of c major on the piano is trivial it's all the white keys anyone can do it but you get a concert pianist doing it and a 5 year old child who's just learnt it they sound very different and they go at different speeds and they are more or less accurate and the timing in between each of the notes is more or less precise and i think there's there's a similarity here practice makes us better and it's true yeah. of everything so why do soft, why are software developers um why do we think we're different we're not different it's just another skill yeah absolutely and and be, before we move on i i i'd, I'd add my praise for cyber dojo I, I, mine is one of the businesses that that uses cyber dojo to support um, my tdd training courses there's a free one which i'll put a link in uh, below and cyber dojo is just such a fantastic tool it makes it so easy to practice um, test driven development and as seb said supports a wide range of different technologies, lots of different problems. It's just there in a can to practice. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to set up any environments. Just go and start using it and playing with it and adding a donation to the charity. Um, and it's it's just a wonderful tool. I, I, you know, I wish there were more things like that in the world around software development, but it's a, it's a fantastic tool. And the first time I saw John Jagger talking about the model of the little the little green dots and red dots and and so on uh, that describe the process again oh of course this is brilliant this is so wonderful as a way of just instantly seeing when, when your progress is working and when it's not just it, it's 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 an excellent tool i'm a big fan um but but that kind of practice as you said 
kind of takes you so far. It seems to you to to take your analogy. It's like a, a musician playing scales, but they're not yet playing hit songs. So you know, there's a there's there's the step on to then using it. You know, in the context of real software, and that's another difficult step, I think, in in helping teams to achieve adoption. Um, there's a there's a a recent uh, episode of the engineering room where I was talking to Emily Bach about the Saman method and about then it's using a mix of the kind of the Carter kind of approach to teaching test driven development and then putting it into context of people's own code bases and so on. If I'm putting words into her mouth to explain how that works. Mm -hmm. So, 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 so what's your way of doing that part of the, solving that part of the problem? Well, I, I don't have a generalized way of doing it because to be honest, I think putting things in context depends on the context. Um, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Um, my, I recall doing, doing a gig with a company in, in Ireland a few years ago and they it was a telecoms company and they had a seven or nine layer architecture or something you know mind-boggling and complicated and they were going well you know we can't write that first um trace bullet because we haven't finished implementing or they haven't even finished specifying this layer in the middle yeah um whether they could whether they could do the basic C major scale of TDD or not is a moot point, but they mm -hmm. were trying to put it now to a full, uh, you know, the full stack to try and get an end-to-end -end, um, test just just to demonstrate that the, the different architectural layers were hanging together. Uh, and I just pointed out, you know, in this situation, well, what happens if that layer just was a, a just you just put in a pass-through you just yeah. essentially nulled it out and it just passed the data through. So you'd at least be able to make sure that all the other layers communicated. And then when the layer gets specified and you begin to implement it, you slot it in. And if it's done correctly, that test will still be working. Otherwise it won't. Mm -hmm. And that was an insight to them. I mean, it, 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 I don't, I'm not claiming there's, there's nothing brilliant here. It's just mm -hmm. the fact that um, in Back in back in when I started doing software, you th we thought you couldn't test software until it was complete. Hence, the yeah. test cycle was at the end. And what we've learned over the past, well, what we've relearned over the past thirty years is that actually you can test whatever bits you've already written. In fact, you can test your ideas before you write any software. And then when you write little parts uh, of the system that you're going to develop uh, that you want to deliver, you can test them. And you can test them in situ. Um, and you don't have to test them with tightly coupled low-level tests that just organize, that just exercise that part. You can test them using the domain language that you've developed during your initial discussions and when you come up with the first idea of what the design should be. And it just so happens that the implementation the un that underpins uh, that high-level abstract domain language initially will just go straight to that just single component, right? But as yeah. you begin to put that component in the context of other collaborating components that are going to deliver your deliver your solution, the the high level um, domain concepts will in fact exercise the application from further and further away from this initial specific uh, component that you delivered, um, 
so essentially what you've got is you've got the same language describing what you're trying to the behavior that you expect and you have the same um, central component that's implementing that business logic but over time it's surrounded by more and more other layers that do other things and you just change the implementation of your top level um domain domain term yes so, and you know sometimes we think about it from the ports and adapters type architecture rather than just dealing with one component well you know maybe we can write a specification that talks about putting pizzas in a shopping cart and and when you start maybe it will just go directly to the shopping cart and try and add a pizza and then when you yeah. add a, a database that lists the products well maybe it will then incorporate that uh, and then when you decide that you should be able to do it on your mobile phone or with a json call then you will add a, an adapter for dealing with that the actual specification that says you should be able to put a margarita pizza in your shopping cart hasn't changed but the implementation of that specification has changed massively from being a hard-coded call to a, a cart object to being a set of collaborating components that probably gets you to log in and um, gets yeah. you to call the database say what what things are there available adds it to the cart displays it on a screen the, the actual specification doesn't change but under the underpinning does and that's that's the evolutionary way of working. You don't change your, yes. your specification. You just evolve your implementation. Yes. And, 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 and for me, at least, that, that seems like the real stumbling block. Is, is the real difference between the people that seem to struggle with it and the, 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 the people like you and I that find it hard to imagine another way, really, realistically, is... Is this idea of, of, of I, I know you and I have both done it in the past, yeah. but I wouldn't, I, we both I wouldn't, well, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> but, but, the, but it's, it's, it's that idea that I don't want, I don't need to, and I don't, realistically, I don't want to have to get everything right first time. I don't, I don't need to, you know, I, I, I don't need to, Think really hard and build a perfect solution. I want to try stuff out. I, I, I want to learn as I'm going. I, I, I don't expect to get things. I'm, I'm pretty good as a software developer, but I don't expect to get things right. I expect to get things wrong. And so I want to do the thing that you keep referring to, evolving my solution in a bunch of small steps and get clear feedback on each of my small steps about where I am. And in the first steps, I'm not going to have an entire system in, in you know in in the first steps but i'm going to work in a way as though you know it's production code even though it doesn't do yet add up to anything that's that's necessarily useful as an entire system and then i can add to it and i can insulate insulate it and making design choices that allow me that exploratory freedom seems like the the challenge and the distinction between these two competing um mindsets I, I don't know i don't know whether that's too grandiose but, but would you recognize some truth in that rambling yeah no i absolutely do um i'm i'm thinking to you know i keep wanting to call him dan north but i'm keep i keep thinking about daniel terhorst north's um work on deliberate discovery and yes. i'm not sure if it, this is his thought experiment or not but uh certainly 
I, I often use it and it goes along the lines of I, I have never been in a project or project retrospective with a team uh, when they said to themselves, if I was to if we were to do this project again, we would do it exactly the same way. Yeah. Right? Doesn't happen. We always learn. And that's and we learn through mistakes. The trick is uh, working out which areas we need to learn most about. And therefore, we need to have some, you know, we need to control the hubris. And I realize that there are going to be areas of the domain or of the technology in which we are woefully ignorant at the start of the project. And we need to target them and address those risks early on. And this is an approach that allows us to do this because it says, well, we can specify the behavior, the end behavior of the product that we want on our existing knowledge, but we don't have to implement the whole system to make sure that we learn about an area that we are we are nervous about that we believe that there is risk lurking we need to, yeah. to we, need, we need to work on those areas first to surface those unknowns to learn the things that we're ignorant of ignorant of and then evolve the system from there but it, it, uh, if you'll forgive you touting my own work that's that's kind of what i mean in my modern software engineering model of optimizing for learning and optimizing for managing complexities is exactly those things those are at the core of our discipline it seems to me and, and that that you know that neither one is more important than the other they're they're, they're both in, intimately entwined it seems to me so i i want i want to come back to 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 to, to some of the stuff that we were talking about in terms of trying to help people to get there, to, to do these things. And, and, and when we were talk, talking uh, about uh, this today, before we started, one of the things that you said that you were interested in discussing was the, the distinction between training and coaching and, and, uh, and you know, how we should treat those. So we've talked a little bit about some of the, the, the training bits using techniques like CyberDojo and so on. But fill, fill in the detail. To, to tell us a little bit more about that yeah so so what i've i spent an, a number of years working for cucumber limited and sometimes at some as an independent consultant doing offering training courses uh, and training courses historically have been quite an easy sell because they're short time box things that purport to deliver um outcomes that are tangible and valuable therefore you can you can get budget for it. Someone's going to pay for it. Whereas coaching is a, well, you know, you pay me to come and speak to people and I'll wander around and we'll sit with them and we'll have conversations. It's very nebulous. Um, now, uh, when I spent my time trying to trying to help people uh, pick up behavior-driven development, um, every proposal that I gave them uh, had several layers, several different options in it. And, you know, the top level options was training and coaching because mm -hmm. my um, my experience, both as a trainer and a coach, but also as a recipient of training is that a training course uh, is training courses are almost always not as valuable as people think they are going to be because you don't get to practice what you learned you get a huge amount of information and you'll get some hands-on stuff while you're doing it but in the same way that you can practice the scales of c if you don't mm -hmm. keep practicing the scale of c day in day out for months you won't get to be good at it and coaching 
um, in my opinion, is a way of working with individuals and teams to ensure that they apply what they learn in the training on a regular basis in, in areas where it's applicable. Um, I mean, a classic example of wasted time was uh, was a, a, a company that I was I was contracting at, and they sent all of their um, web developers on uh, on a training course for a new version of the framework in which they delivered their software. In. Mm -hmm. um, but that new version required an upgrade of the Java of the JVM. And that wasn't scheduled until that, that got the portfolio board pushed that out for several months. And they had a project that had been scheduled prior to the JVM update, but after the training course, they had to deliver in the previous version of the framework. Now, this is a classic, you know, oh yeah, yeah, they've had the training in version seven, but we've just sent them back to do um, all of the development of the next project in version six. How does How does that make any sense? So... Um, training is a way of getting a lot of information across quickly, uh, and it's it has its uses, but until you can solidify it with practice, um, you are not going to get the whole value from it. And additionally, that um, you will find that even if you leave, even if you do the training course and then you go back and sit down at your desk and try to apply it, you will find that questions, contextual questions, come up no matter how good the training was, that you can't answer on your own. And that's yeah. where the coaching really comes in. Um, you have somebody who's experienced in a specific area that the, the team wants to get better at, but has a wider has a wider breadth of experience and knowledge so that they can see um, areas where the training course, can, the, the material from the training course can be applied, but also areas where it can't be applied and where other techniques might be appropriate. Because another challenge that we have not just in software, but in pretty much any walk of life, is that we, uh, you know, for someone with a hammer, every problem seems like it's a nail. Um, yeah. And so you go to a training course and, for instance, we're talking about TDD. Well, we might try and TDD, um, I don't know, a templating uh, library. And we actually go down and try and write tests around the library that we've just borrowed in from somebody else. This is not a great idea. Mm -hmm. You might have mentioned it in a three-day TDD course, Oh, don't don't try and write TDD tests around, you know, automated code generation from frameworks that you you don't own. But then you get back, and that's where you're where you're working as in your day job. And the temptation, you maybe just forget that, and the temptation is yeah. to write inappropriate tests. So coaching is the thing that that actually turns the training into valuable skills that can be delivered to help the business um, achieve its ends. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. training on its own. Um, often goes to waste and coaching on its own can be valuable, but you need to, if you want just coaching, then you probably need to have a scope, an area of, uh, of work that the team or the individual has identified as somewhere that they want to improve on or that they think that they have weaknesses. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's a really good description. And, and it, it makes me think about the, you know, one of my other bugbears, my 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 many bugbears about the software industry, which is um, that we 
we, we many many organizations don't don't value learning in 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 their teams uh, you, you were talking earlier about you know the organizations hiring hiring developers and wanting to the, hit the ground running and all of those kinds of stupid you know rock star kind of you know promotion ideas uh, in in recruitment but i i've been fortunate to 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 work in in a handful of world class development teams through through my career and i think i think that's a lot during the you know to, to, during the course of my career and all of them all, all of the best developers i've ever worked with are completely obsessed with 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 learning new things developing their skills you know being humble about the knowledge that they have and and, and, and want to gather more and helping other people i i i often i often in the back of my mind think about uh, fred brooks talking about this in the mythical man month in the 1970s about his idea of surgical teams you know you 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 have a very experienced person a mid experienced person and a, a junior person on a team working together and supporting one another and they're all it's not just that the junior person's learning from the expert they're all learning from one another and that kind of coaching is is certainly the hallmarks of the world class teams that I've worked on that kind of mutual support and learning going forward all of the time i can uh, my most recent version of this world class team was uh, lmax where we built financial exchange and i can remember being floored by questions from the most junior member of the team and you just go hold on a minute i, I don't know the answer to that what why is that why are we doing that stupid thing that's a really, you know, how could we do it better? And 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 being open to both supporting one another seems fundamentally part of the job, but but also open for organisations to support that kind of idea of internal coaching. This is not necessarily hiring external people like you and I to try and sit next to teams. It's 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 more that philosophy of learning again. It seems to me. So there's there there is a there is a sort of I don't know if it's a subtlety, but um. Coaching itself, you know, I I don't have any coaching certifications, but I have spent a lot of time watching coaches and reading about coaching um, and practicing coaching. And coaching, uh, it, it can, it's it's quite hard because you need to you need to understand your you know the power dynamics between you and the person that you are coaching, and there's um, there's some stances that you can take. Uh, you know the Socratic approach to coaching is, is, you know, is generally is generally the way I work, which is asking questions, open questions back to to encourage the the coachee uh, to consider you know their position. Um, if you just put junior and senior, you know, a mix of people together, you can you can end up with a. Um, a slightly more restrictive pedagogy where the experienced person goes, no, you must do it like this and is yeah. incapable of explaining it and doesn't give the, given, given the coachy, um, the space to actually think their way into the problem. Yes. Uh, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a distinct set of skills. Um, I, I think I, 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 I think I think my own view is that the the best coaches will both be very skilled at what it is that they're coaching as well as having coaching skills. Yeah. You, you can't you can't either one alone isn't enough. 
Yes. And this is this is so for instance, this is why it's really hard uh to find a technical agile coach because mm-hmm. um technical people often don't have the softer skills that a lot of agile teams are looking for. And agile coaches uh generally don't have many technical skills. And so what we end up with is a lot of a lot of ceremony coaching and the then technical stuff is, is DIY. You either read the books or watch the, the online videos or um, go to training courses. Yeah. It's hard to find people with both those sets of skills. And when I was working at Cucumber, we tried to develop, uh, we, we tried to enlarge our pool of people that could deliver our course. And we found that very hard because you need to both be a trainer and understand behavior-driven development and also understand the implementation of, you know, the language bindings of Cucumber. And yeah. that takes quite specific people. And it, it's a vanishing, vanishingly small uh, area, a group of people who actually have, um, have, uh, have acquired all those skills. Yes. Uh, let's, let's, let's move on a bit. I, 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 one of, one of the, the other things that I saw... Um, Recently, from you, I think uh, one of your recent talks, you were talking about contract testing and PACT, um, and I, I, I really liked your presentation. And um, and one of the ideas that stuck with me, that resonated, uh, you mentioned you mentioned a naive approach and decoupled approaches to, uh, to to thinking about the contracts between different services. Could you just Cover a little bit that, and and in particular, maybe touching on. <laughs> I think I think something a view that we both share is that microservices is one of those really good ideas, more frequently practiced in the breach than the observance. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. So, so I mean. The idea of contract testing again is that it's not really about testing. Um, again, yeah. just like TDD isn't really about testing, and BDD isn't about testing. The contracts are about trying to um, specify the um, dependencies between components in a way that is both understandable to the people who need to understand them, but is also enforceable or at least checkable by software so it so it can be the the compliance can be automatically discovered um and one of the challenges is that in the in the microservice um environment ecosystem that we live in at the moment you don't just have component a talking to component b you've got chains of interaction and chains of dependency uh and the the challenges you know maybe we're skipping ahead a bit too quickly but the challenge in in the, the microservice ecosystem is that the promise of microservices is that each microservice should be independently deployable mm-hmm. um, rather than having to uh, naively release uh, multiple uh, microservices in lockstep uh, and one of the the challenge there is that if you have multi, if you've got a pipeline uh, as your 
your wonderful book, which I see on the shelf behind you, talks about, then you'll have you'll have different versions, potentially have different versions of each component in each environment of the pipelines, and you'll want to run the yeah. run the so ensure compliance as the component uh, moves its way through um, from doing the unit tests, for instance, all the way through to deployment and uh, and making sure that it works in live. And now we've got a lot of it's not just uh, it's not just one component talking to another. It's not, not just one component potentially talking to many other components. It's a version of a component that has to work with many other components that might also be in many other versions. And we've got a cross product going on here. And quite mm -hmm. quickly, it becomes mind bogglingly complicated to try and visualize it for a human. Not so difficult for a machine. Um, and this is where PACT really excels. So um, PACT, uh, which is an, a free open source piece of software, um, ships with uh, a component within it called the PACT broker, which essentially tracks each version of each component, what its dependencies are on other components, and which environments each <coughs> version has been deployed in. Um, and you only have to run the test between, or run the contract test between component A version 73 and component b version 212 once and now you can say that whenever you are about to promote component a into a new environment you just check have i run it have I run a test with this version of this component against the version of the component that it depends on in the environment i'm just about to deploy it to so you don't have to run the test at the point that you want to do the deployment you just have mm -hmm. to look uh, in your the broker's matrix, what was the result of that test? And if the test is yep. passed, then it's for for the purposes of that dependency, it might be safe to promote. Um, and then then you scale it up to multiple dependencies and many many components, and you get a very very quick way of being able to ascertain whether it's safe to promote any given version of a component into a specified environment. Mm -hmm. That's a major win. Um, uh, Beth Beth Scurry, who's one of the developers, uh, original developers of Pact, um, has a wonderful saying, which is, um, if if you can't promote a microservice in, independently of other microservices, you don't have um, you don't have microservices. What you've got is a distributed monolith. Yeah, uh, and there's nothing wrong with a distributed monolith. It's just it doesn't deliver. Uh, some of the beneficial properties that a microservice architecture uh, promises to people. And so uh, there are many organizations who've jumped head first into microservices, maybe without understanding all of the constraints about them, but certainly without understanding the, the need to be able to treat each microservice as an independent deployable that can be uh, evolved, um, promoted and deployed without having to worry about changing other ones. If you're introducing a breaking change, you want to know that you've introduced a breaking change and then maybe you do have to deploy them at the same time. But as uh, as your book um, uh, lays out in some of the pattern sections, you know, there are ways of keeping backward compatibility and then phase, phasing it out later. So there are, yeah, I'm not sure. Is that is that what you wanted? Is that the question you wanted me to ask? No, 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 no that's, that's, that, that's perfect. Thank you. And, 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 
and it, it's perfect on mo multiple fronts in, in, in that it's really understandable. You've talked about a new project and you're reinforcing my prejudices. So it's ticking all the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree entirely. I, I, I often talk about I, I, I'm I'm a fairly I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly strong proponent of a distributed monolith in the right circumstances. It has some nicer properties. It makes dependency management a lot easier for some kinds of systems than microservices do. But microservices have some wonderful properties and you need to architect your system to get the gains that you want to get rather than just following a fad. <laughs> well, so I think, um, uh, I think Matt Wynn did a, a a talk it must be a decade ago now called mortgage driven development yeah uh, basically um, it was a satire right so nobody listening should take it seriously but where you try where you practice a particular skill because you know it'll look good on your cv and it'll get you another job yeah later yeah yeah I, yeah it's it's at risk of being one of those at times but but i, 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 I and contract testing is certainly you know, an important part of the answer. I think the other thing that we've alluded to throughout our conversation is the idea of more deliberate design, thinking about what those contracts are and, you know, abstracting appropriately to, to, to reduce coupling to a sensible level, a sensible manageable level. And that gives you then opportunities to mitigate the chances of, of, of a change in one part of the system adversely affecting another and your con your contract tests can if they're good can can detect those those the, the, the times when you get that wrong yeah but, but... I, I i'm very conscious that we are running out of time and i know i know that you've got um you've got things to do um uh, there's 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 one thing i i don't know whether you've got Two or three minutes on expert advice and its pitfalls. I liked the sound of that when you mentioned it as a suggested yeah. topic to talk to. So it's a it's a session that I've been uh, I've been doing for a few years now, um, and I use uh, agile examples from the agile sphere to um, to point out that um, when an so you and I, depending on who we're speaking to, we considered experts. And uh, when we say something, uh, people uh, potentially the two two things can go wrong. One is they misunderstand what we say, and the other is they don't misunderstand what we say, but they don't take it in a context sensitive way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so um, I use one of the examples I use is. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't prepared for this actually. So I'm thinking about this, <laughs> Sorry. I'm thinking back to the talk that I was I was giving. Um uh, there is a an acronym that is used to for good user stories. And um I know exactly what it is and I can't remember it now. Can you, can you help me? Invest. Invest. Thank you very much. It's the invest acronym. Um and so one of the um uh, one of the things that it talks about is independence yeah. and well independent it's an english word it should be easy to understand what does that mean well independent doesn't mean that the story is completely separate from everything else because you know yeah. the whole idea of user stories is that they incrementally build on top of each other 
Independent yeah. really means that you shouldn't have to deliver two stories in parallel at the same time. So they could be yeah. independently deliverable. Yeah. That's not explained clearly. And so people quite frequently, that then leads teams to think, well, this story builds on that story. So they're not independent. So we should merge them together. And then you yeah. end up with massive stories. Yeah. And the same thing goes, you see the same thing over and over again. Story points has the same problem. Um, yeah. There are all sorts of spheres where people come up with nice ways of communicating a simple concept for people who are learning. And then that explanation uh, gets gets the weight of something that's been handed down on a tablet on top of a mountain. And it must <laughs> never it must never be contravened. Um, and so the, the actual the, the, the point of my session is to demonstrate that there are multiple things that everybody in the audience is very familiar with that they've heard number of number of number of times in the past and that are very useful in many many situations and yet there are situations where they are not just not useful but positively damaging mm -hmm. um, and i then then i segue into the fact that uh, really what we're looking for is more of a pattern form of communication so I, i'm not sure whether whether many people listening to this have gone beyond, you know, the head first design patterns type books or the gang of four, but the whole patterns movement uh, um, was started by an architect called Christopher Alexander back in the seventies or maybe in the sixties. Um, and he came up with a, a building architect, a building architect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he came up with a, a pattern form, which talked about the context in which a pattern was applicable yeah. and the resulting forces you know, as in what 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 the resulting context looked like, and therefore, uh, if you apply this pattern in this context where it's applicable, well, there are some limitations to how you can then proceed because there are some results of applying that context. And I think that most of our expert advice doesn't come with enough context. Both uh, is this pattern applicable, and also yeah. what what constraints or what what the ramifications of applying this pattern. Um, and so my uh, the, the the conference talk, and I'm not sure if it's been recorded actually, but the conference talk when I give it, the idea is to give people um, give people sort of belly laughs about how you can misunderstand, you know, really really quite um, popular uh, acronyms or diagrams or heuristics, and then to then show that. There are contexts in which they are appropriate and contexts where they're not. And there are yeah. contexts that the outcomes or the, out, yeah, the outcomes of applying them are beneficial and others where they're not. And so if you don't, if if someone is giving you advice and they don't give you the context in which it's applicable and they don't tell you about some of the ramifications of applying it, then yeah. you know, caveat emptor, as they say, buyer yeah. beware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Any trouble that you have, I'm afraid, is your own. And but the problem is, we have a culture of experts. We've got Stack Overflow. We've got, yeah. I'm saying, we've got your, we've got your YouTube channel. We've got my books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. All have contextual limitations. Absolutely, hundred percent. I, I shall, I shall go and look up that conference talk. I hope it is online somewhere. And if it isn't, record one and tell us. <laughs> I will try and do that. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> it's it sounds like fun. So, 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 I, I think the summary of our conversation, from my point of view, is probably it's complicated. 
Yes. <laughs> it is. I, 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 I like that about software development. It is complicated. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, we're, we're no longer writing little basic loops that go, hello, what's your name? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seb. Hello, Seb. <laughs> Anyway, I, 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 I feel like we should wrap up. It's been an absolute delight talking to you today. Thank, thank you so much, Seb, for agreeing uh, to, to doing this. It's, it's been a lot of fun, and I've enjoyed our, our, our conversation uh, a huge yes, amount. Uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure. Oh, I say once once again, thanks to Equal Experts for, for sponsoring this. If you've enjoyed watching this and you've got this far, please do hit like. Um, and if you're not already a subscriber to the channel, subscribe to the channel. We've got more content like this. Thank you very much and bye-bye. Bye-bye.